FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Well, it was a late night at the state capitol last night. Uh, I just heard from a couple of our panelists that the session went on until about 12.15, uh, 12.20, before they banged the gavels and announced sine die, the end of 40 days. Uh, We're going to talk about what uh, won and what lost in the final uh, push to uh, pass measures or to block them. Uh, in uh, the on the last day, the 40th day of the session, uh, politics marches on despite the fact the legislature is over. Ron DeSantis is in town this afternoon. He's going to be appearing at a, a, a gun store in Smyrna that bills itself as the world's largest and is often a place where Republican candidates hold campaign rallies. Um, he's gotten some pushback from Democrats for going up there, especially in the days after the Nashville tragedy. We'll talk a bit about that, and we got a lot more that we can talk about on today's show. But we'll start with the legislature, and before that, introduce the panel. Kevin Riley is with us. We now introduce you, Kevin, as editor-at-large of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution since you announced your retirement, but you do still have a role at the paper. Um, And as I introduce you, I do want to say... That, Kevin, you and I, of course, on the day after your announcement, did an hour in which we talked about your career. And I have to tell you, we got so much wonderful feedback for the stories you told. And for people who never listened to it, it's available on our podcast or at uh, gpb.org slash PR. It's really worth listening to. Hi, Kevin. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I, I can't believe anyone hasn't heard we did that because I texted or emailed every person I know to get them to listen to it, of course. Uh, but no, thank you. You were you were so kind. And um, I want to mention one other thing. I know we have lots of politics to call about to talk about, but today is opening day of the baseball season. Well, I was I was going to say that now that you are sort of retired, you can stay up late enough tonight to watch your Cleveland Guardians who opened the season in Seattle against the Mariners, a game that doesn't even start until after 10 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Right. they the, My team opens on the road just as Atlanta's team opens on the road this season. So, uh, But we'll have a big home opener next week here in Atlanta, so we can look forward right. to that. Yeah, I think the Braves have six away games before they come in. Uh, Meg Kennard uh, is back with us, AP uh, uh, national politics and legal correspondent based out of South Carolina. But, uh, Meg, we always love having you on the show because you pay a lot of attention to what's going on in Georgia. So thanks for being here again today, Meg. Absolutely. It is always good to be back with you guys, especially with this esteemed panel. I'm so glad to be here. It is a good panel. Maya Prabhu adds uh, to the mix today. She, of course, is a government reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Maya, you were up late last night um, covering uh, this session. How you how you doing this morning? I am hurting mentally and physically. 
Um, and I apologize for any brain farts during this hour. <laughs> I, I think on public radio, the word you just used is probably acceptable. So we won't worry about it. <laughs> at all. Um, and we were joined for the first time. You have heard us talk about her. I think if you've been a longtime listener of our show, Sarah Callis, who has been an intern uh, for Political Rewind, who has been a part-time producer for Political Rewind, who was a producer on Lawmakers this year. And Sarah, this is your first time behind the microphone for Political Rewind. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. We're glad you're here. All right, let's get started. Um, Maya, let me turn to you first, because I, what I'd like to talk about is winners and losers last night. I don't think it would be wrong to say that one of the most contentious bills, which many people were watching very closely, school vouchers, which Kemp, Governor Kemp put his weight behind in the final days of the session, was defeated. That's kind of shocking, given that the governor uh, put his weight behind the bill. Tell us what happened. Yeah, you know, it it went back and forth in the House. They debated it a little bit last week. It it appeared that it wasn't going to go well. They tabled the bill. They took it back to rules. They made some more changes. I think they thought they had the numbers. Um, and when it came to a vote, they came up two votes short, I think, a little more than a dozen Republicans uh, sided with almost all of the Democrats. And um, yeah, they just they just didn't have the votes. And, you know, I pick typically across the hall in the Senate and we could just hear this outburst of cheering and we're all looking around like, what was that? And then someone said uh, school, school vouchers failed. And we're all just like rushing to our computers to find out what happened. But yeah, it was there was the loudest outburst I've probably ever heard since I've been um, working down there at the Capitol when when that bill went down in the House. Sarah, uh, the measure would have uh, given vouchers, uh, I think, what, sixty five hundred dollars is is the approximate amount. And it, it would have been for uh, the uh, for students in the lower 25 percent of failing schools across the state. Not all students were eligible. But, of course, the argument against it, or the argument for it is, look, give families an opportunity to put their students in schools, their children in schools that are higher achieving, give them a chance to succeed. And the argument against it was you're taking money out of public schools that are desperately in need uh, right now. Right, Sarah? Yes, that's right. And another thing that some of the opponents pointed out is that $6,500 really isn't enough to cover a private school tuition in most areas of the state. They also pointed out that some areas don't have a private school nearby. Uh, the funds could have also been used for tutoring or a charter school, but the debate seemed to really center around private schools primarily. Of course, supporters say that it allowed families to customize education to the child's needs. Meg, um, let me bring you in on this. You know, for, here in, this, in the Georgia legislature, vouchers have been a long sought after uh, initiative. I mean, the Republicans have been trying to pass it for many years. But it's also, it, it tends to be popular in any number of Republican states, particularly in, I think, the Sun Belt, uh, certainly in the South, the South and the Southeast. Uh, it's something that, that Republicans really push hard for. 
It absolutely is. And it's also when we spin forward toward kind of like a zoom out political look, this issue of school choice, of vouchers, of, as you say, purportedly trying to empower parents to have more of a voice in their children's education, that's something that we're already seeing really starting to take shape in terms of the GOP presidential field for 2024. Mm. There's candidates already, like Nikki Haley is already talking about this in her stump speech, spinning backward toward her work as a lawmaker and then governor in South Carolina on this issue. And then from others who might be joining the field, like Senator Tim Scott, also from South Carolina, this is one of his biggest issues that he talks about all the time. So yes, we're absolutely seeing this play out in Republican um, controlled states and legislatures across the country, but we're also going to be hearing about it a lot from the people who would like to be president on the Republican side. Meg Kevin? makes a great point. Yeah, Meg makes a great point there because it always feels like an extremely local issue, like you're talking about your own school or your own school district or your kids or your neighbor's kids. But in fact, it's going to be a huge national issue. And it's one of those issues where the vocabulary each side uses really comes into play because who is against parents being engaged with their schools or being to, able to make choice about where their kids go to school? It's really hard to argue against that. But in fact, you know, the, the opponents point out, you know, one of the great, arguably one of the great achievements of our country is public education. It is, it is the... I think it's the top, if not one of the top things in the Georgia Constitution for which the state is responsible for providing to its citizens. And those who are against this kind of thing are saying we are undermining the whole system. And so the argument really becomes one of talking past each other. But it's become clear, at least in Georgia, that the Republicans' argument is really beginning to uh, take hold. And it's hard to believe they won't eventually get their way on this. Maya, before we move on, we should point out that uh, this is the first year of a biennial, which means that uh, they don't have to reintroduce it in the next session in 2024. It'll still be alive and up for a debate. And and with that in mind, I, Maya, I've, I said throughout this session on the air that it seemed improbable to me that Brian Kemp, who scored such stunning victories both in his primary battle against David Perdue and then a significant victory over Stacey Abrams. It would be hard to imagine him losing any fight that uh, he took on in the legislature. So, so I have to acknowledge I was a little surprised by this one. Yeah, you know, I, I just think back to last year when in the yeah. last moments of um, Steiny Die, uh, the governor did a push for... Um, measures that would uh, not allow transgender girls to play sports on teams that align with their gender identity. You know, he kind of at the last minute came in and then all of a sudden we had this uh, amendment to a bill. Um, so, yeah, I think I was a little surprised that it didn't didn't go through as well. He's he's been he's had a he's had a pretty decent track record, I would say, throughout his time in office. So I don't know if it's just a uh, the new leadership all across the legislature um, is still working out what works for them and how they're going to operate and work with each other. But yeah, we'll see what happens when this when this comes back. I, I assume it comes back next year. All right, um, let's move on to another major initiative that um, got some success, had some success, but it was very, very limited. Um, and that was the second year, Kevin, 
of a, of an overhaul of mental health uh, resources systems in the state. We know that for a very, very long time, Georgia ranked near the bottom of states in terms of the mental health services it delivered to those in need. Uh, last year, as we've talked about on the show many times, David Ralston made it his signature uh, uh, piece of legislation, passed it by big numbers, um, and after passing away, it truly became his genuine legacy. Uh, this was the second year, and the House voted for it, uh, something like 163 to 3, I think. But in the Senate, it ran into serious trouble, and a lot of it seemed to be uh, political, because there was a component of it that would have provided additional uh, services like Medicaid job training for uh, those who were dealing with um, uh, mental health issues, housing for uh, uh, people who had been imprisoned uh, and and who had committed crimes largely because of mental health problems. And the Senate simply didn't want to go along with that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that um, people who were advocating uh, for this bill, both, you know, in the in the legislature, but those uh, in the community and in the state, going to be very disappointed because when that bill passed last year with, you know, David Ralston's support, everyone said, hey, this is a first step, you know, and often you hear that with legislation, let's get something done and we'll continue to build on it. And everyone you talk to really like this next step, people who care about the issue. Uh, in fact, I had, and I'm sure on the show, we had several discussions with uh, Representative Oliver, who, who who was a main player in this, and she said that the failure of it, you know, the fact that it didn't get through was, quote, pure politics, which is very, very disappointing because we all know where Georgia stands on these mental health issues. And part of what we expect from the legislature is helping to move our state forward on important things. Um, yeah, Mary Margaret has uh, already, uh, I know she's a pretty regular listener to the show, and she a couple times this week has sent me uh, messages saying how disappointed uh, she's been that the Senate uh, didn't want to go along with all of these um, efforts. Um, Sarah, again, it's the first year of a biennial, so there's no reason to expect that there won't be an effort again next year to pass the more robust version of this bill, but we'll see. I think there's a lot of hope that um, this bill will end up making it to the floor for a Senate vote next session. I know House leadership expressed some disappointment that it didn't pass. I know there was a little bit of talk that it may have been a politics game. There was a Senate bill that the House didn't pass that dealt with hospital certificates of need. I know some people were saying that that might have been related to um, HB 520 being stalled. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens as far as that goes. I know a lot of people were hoping that that additional support would end up making it through. And I think for the House members especially, I think it being part of uh, Speaker Ralston's legacy um, was a big part of that. I think that added some pressure to pass this legislation. Um, all right, Meg, let's move on if we uh, can. I, is sports betting legal in South Carolina? Do you, do you know the answer to that question? Because as of last night, it's still not legal in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> there have been efforts throughout the years um, to increase um, the amount of betting or any sort of gambling-related efforts that's legal in South Carolina. Um, but currently, that has not been successful. Again, it comes up every single session. Um, often there's an effort from even like the, the legislative leaders on the Democratic side and the House particularly to say, yep, this would be a great revenue generator for the state. And it's absolutely something that we need to 
do, but so far that has not happened. Um, Maya, so let's look at it in a larger context. Um, sports betting was one of any number. We had, I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I think we had at least four different versions of a sports betting bill. Some tied them to a constitutional amendment. Others said no, a straight up and down vote by the legislature, signature by the governor is enough to put it in place. One of the bills uh, tied it to paramutual wagering, horse race gambling, Um they, they all, in the long run, failed, Maya, despite the fact that the major sports teams in this, in the city of Atlanta, have been behind this for at least three sessions. Yeah, the, the sports franchises are behind it. The Metro Atlanta Chamber is behind it. Um, and I, I don't, I think there are a couple of factors at play. I think there's a <laughs> camp of people who think that a constitutional amendment is required um, in order to expands any form of gambling in Georgia. And then there is a camp of people who believe that um, they can tuck the sports betting underneath the Georgia lottery and and expand gambling in that way, let the lottery run it. And therefore, since the voters have already said we can have a lottery, they don't need to go back for a constitutional amendment. I think that has a lot to do with um, why some of the bills stalled people there's not been a consensus on on what which way they think is the best way forward um but this this last effort was a um like you said just straight up and down vote it would have been under the lottery it was something that lieutenant governor jones said he wanted to get a verdict on and then you know after session last night we uh he spoke to a few reporters and he just said you know, they just didn't they just didn't have the votes to bring it out on the floor, which I also think is interesting because I think I've I've said on the show before that this lieutenant governor has not been afraid to let bills fail on the floor. Two of these sports betting bills have failed on the floor in the Senate. Um, but with this one, he decided uh, not to put it up for a vote and have it go down in flames. Kevin. You know, Bill, um, I think it's on this one, it's a good idea to also step out of uh, the politics and the, you know, the uh, labyrinth of procedural moves in the uh, in the legislature when we talk about it. But it really comes down to sort of an important issue, especially for Atlanta. And, and I think that's part of the challenge, Atlanta versus the rest of the state. The, the pro sports teams in our city want this. They believe it, it. They they spoke more softly this session than they have in the past, but they believe it is crucial. The reason they believe it's crucial is that they have to continue to generate interest, appeal to a new generation of fans, and they know that their competition around the country, right? They have to compete with teams around the country in order to, to deliver the interest and the fun for Atlanta that they market. You can bet on your team in other states. I mean, it's really that simple. And you can go to games and do right on your phone, be betting on things. They believe that is crucial to maintaining fan interest and enthusiasm, attendance at games, paying attention on television. And with every year that passes uh, where Georgia, can't, you can't do this in Georgia, that I think they're, they're concerned it's going to hurt their ability to deliver the kind of teams that, you know, the fans here expect. Um, and yet, let's face it, Meg, to take the other side of the argument, opponents, among other things, think that gambling is immoral. Some of them do, the religious right. Uh, and there are those who believe that um, legalizing gambling of any form uh, usually, and they feel this, some of them who oppose the lottery have the same feelings, preys upon some of the, um, you know, poor, poor people 
in a, a state who are looking for a way to make money uh, as quickly as possible. Absolutely. That is oftentimes the argument that we hear about gambling or making wagers of any description in South Carolina. That was a large part of the argument of people who initially some years ago opposed the implementation of a state lottery here. That effort was successful. There have been all kinds of multi-million dollar winners to come out of the state um, since that was allowed. But I also remember back in those days, a lot of, of the um along the border areas between especially South Carolina and Georgia and also up to North Carolina, you know, back in the days of like the bingo halls and those kinds of things as that kind of filtered out as well. So there have always been, you know, a lot of people who suggest, as you say, that, you know, allowing these kinds of efforts to take root, whatever the form of gambling or making wagers, that that somehow will disenfranchise and take advantage of people who might be susceptible to kind of falling into bad patterns in that front. Um, we hear it on a morality basis, those same kinds of arguments. But as we've seen in states like this one that ultimately did adopt the lottery, but still can't, hasn't adopted sports betting, somehow, somewhere there's a line that folks draw on those kinds of issues as to what's to be accepted and what's not. Kevin, quick final comment. It's no accident that the lottery in South Carolina is called the education lottery. It's a clever name to emphasize uh, that it funds education. And I, to me, whenever I see commercials or any marketing for it, it just sort of cracks me up. Um, one last point, uh, Maya, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, sports betting was the big gambling measure, a little bit of horse race gambling, but we had, the the lobbyists who were used to be down at the Capitol in force in big numbers pushing for legalized casinos in the state. Um, were was there a casino effort at all this session? I mean, not really. We we didn't see any specific casino bills. We saw, um, you know. Uh, House Democratic leader James Beverly and his version of sports betting that he filed, it would have legalized all forms of gambling. Um, and then there was an effort on the floor in the um, in the second sports betting bill that failed in the Senate. There was an effort uh, from Senator Brandon Beach, who has been a long, uh, a long supporter of expanding you know, all three of these forms of gambling that we talk about in Georgia, horse racing, sports betting and casino gambling. So he tried to add an amendment to the sports betting bill that was being debated at that time um, and wasn't and was wasn't unable to do it. So it's it's not seen as much uh, generated as much excitement or talk as it has in the past. I wonder where all those high priced lobbyists are spending their time pushing for casinos they're, these they're, days. They're sitting in the halls. They're sitting. They're still sitting in the oh, halls, oh. so we'll see. <laughs> uh, Sarah, one last item before we go to a break. Um, uh, Esther Panich had worked very hard to pass a bill that would define anti-Semitism and thus pave the way for it to be included under a hate crime statute in the state of Georgia. She did it after being one of any number of people in the northern suburbs who were leafleted with really hateful anti-Semitic uh, messages. The um, Anti-Defamation League late in the session put out a report that hate crime, that, that anti-Semitic incidents were up 60 plus percent in Georgia, and yet the bill couldn't get across the finish line. What happened, Sarah? 
Um, there's a lot of resistance to some of the language in the bill. I think even from the early days of it, uh, it was using um, a definition that a lot of people were not a huge fan of. I think there was some concern that it limit it limited free speech, especially with criticisms against Israel. Um, they were worried that that could come across as anti-Semitism under the definition of this bill. And so there was a lot of resistance to it in some of the early House committee meetings. Then it saw a little bit of a resurgence after these anti-Semitic flyers were found in the northern suburbs of Atlanta. Um, and so then it ended up passing the House and then it got stalled in the Senate. Um, there were some efforts to remove some of the language in House Bill 30, which was the original version of the bill. Um, and then the sponsor of the bill asked for that to be tabled and it got amended into a different bill, which is House Bill 140. Um, and then we never saw that receive a floor vote. Supporters of the bill were saying that the free speech limiting allegations uh, weren't accurate since it would mostly apply to hate crimes. It wouldn't just apply to speech, but some of the opponents were saying that it could unfairly target supporters of Palestine. And so, um, as we've said before, as we've said before, um, we could still see this next session. All right, um, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, just I want to make a quick uh, uh, go round. And and Maya, I'll probably start with you. We had this new leadership. We had a new House Speaker. We had a new uh, Lieutenant Governor, President of the Senate. Um, I want to talk just very briefly about who seemed to win and lose in terms of those new leadership roles. And then we'll move on to other subjects here on Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Kevin Riley, Sarah Callis, um, Meg Kennard, and uh, Maya Prabhu join us uh, for today's show. Um, Maya, uh, the the lieutenant governor got into a pretty extended uh, fight battle this session. He wanted very much to end certificates of need, uh, which were a requirement before a hospital could be built in uh, uh, in any uh, part of the state. He felt that that hurt rural Georgia. There were some there was some concern that there was self interest involved because he wanted a hospital down in Jackson, where his father owns Lamb. I don't want to deal with that part of this story right now. He got enormous pushback uh, and eventually lost that fight. Uh, But in the process, he also, uh, I think, was led the effort uh, to cut the higher education budget very dramatically, at least in part, I think, as a result of this fight. He was not happy with Wellstar, which is involved in a major uh, operation out in Augusta. So without getting into the to the, to the nitty-gritty details of this, was this a tough session for Burt Jones? Did, did, did he end up showing up, showing himself to be a pretty good leader in the Senate, or do you think he learned that he's got to be more of a team player moving forward? 
You know, that's that's really a tough question. Um, when you when before the break, when you said uh, determine who won as far as leadership, I was going to say, can can I say that everyone lost? I don't know. I feel like. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like there were, uh, you know, this effort to push this uh, certificate of need bill from the lieutenant governor, you know, in the House, there was a push for the mental health bill. We didn't get any of it. Um, but yes, it, it does seem like uh, the the Senate at least uh, took out some of its frustration on higher education funding. Um, and then during the debate of the final passage of the budget in the Senate, they spent a lot of time, a lot of Republicans stood up and spent a lot of time talking about all of the issues that 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 they're that they see in the uh, university system. So um yeah, I think it might have been a uh, part of the collateral damage, um, but I guess it remains to be seen how that shakes out. Your colleague, James Salzer, who is, uh, follows the budget like nobody else, he knows the budget better than most of the legislators, is going to join us for the first uh, part of the show tomorrow to talk much more in much more detail about that issue and others. Really, finally, one last uh, item from the legislative session, Sarah. During the break, Natalie Mendenhall whispered in my ear that you have been following and very interested in the anti-crime measures that did pass, particularly those that take on gang recruitment and cash bond. So we know that gang recruitment was one of the governor's priorities going into the legislative session. He said that he really wanted to crack down on recruitment of minors and gangs in Georgia. Um, and so Senate Bill 44, which increased the mandatory minimum sentence for uh, recruiting a minor into a gang, so that would be a person under 17, um, passed both the House and the Senate. I know there was some significant resistance from Democrats who were saying that this could land teenagers or very young adults in prison for a long period of time, even if it was you know, a family member or it wasn't a gang in the way that we necessarily think about gangs. It could have just been a group of teenagers going out and doing graffiti or purchasing marijuana. Um, it ended up passing both the House and the Senate. And so I expect the governor will sign it into law since he said it was one of his priorities. And then uh, SB 63 attacks cash bail. And so essentially what that does is it says that it expands a list of bail restricted offenses. And so that means that the judge cannot release you on unsecured judicial release. You're going to need to pay a bail in order to get out of jail when you've been charged with a crime, um, but you haven't received trial yet. And so some Democrats resisted that again, um, saying that it could land too many people in jail, but it sort of goes with an overall tough on crime theme that we see with some of the Republicans this session. And that we're going to talk about in a minute, we'll play into the presidential campaign as well. Kevin? Yeah. Hey, Bill, I want to mention two things, uh, and I, I don't want to grab uh, the range of the show from you, but I think they're worth mentioning. The first is, and they involve um, you and me in, in, our, in, our, in our work. The first is House Bill 404, which was in reaction to our investigation of um, what we call dangerous dwellings that did not get passed in the Senate after making it out of the House. That bill would have required that landlords define uh, or make sure they provide housing that is uh, I think it was habitable by by human beings or so. I don't know the terminology Maya probably does, but um, and that was tabled and never reached a vote in the Senate. We hope that uh, remains uh, and maybe next session gets passed. We there was a lot of support for that. And then second, of course, is uh, Georgia Public Broadcasting's budget was was cut during all of this. And I know that you're very careful about uh, seeming self serving at all on this show, but I do think it's worth a quick 
summary of what happened there because uh, your listeners will care about it. Oh, thank you. We haven't talked about it on the show because, as you say, I do think it would be too self-serving to do that. Yes, there was a recommendation in the Senate that the uh, budget, the state funding that we get be cut by 25 percent. It ended up as a 10 percent cut. Uh, and just to be clear, very briefly, um, the money that George and, and you hear this from me every time we have a pledge drive, the money that that uh, that we receive from the state, the largest share of it goes to the education curriculum programs that our extraordinary education department produces for remote learning for schools across the state. We, for instance, developed the state curriculum in uh, 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 chemistry uh, a couple of years ago, and um, we do other things of a similar nature. All of the funding uh, for programming including Political Rewind and all the NPR shows that you listen to, comes out of contributions from listeners uh, to the radio side and viewers. So uh, if there's any problem at all, it's the question is what happens with a 10% cut that will have some effect on, on the education people. But our team here is pretty confident that we're going to be just fine. Um, so that said... I'd really love to uh, move on. Um, Meg, you're going to be out covering the presidential campaign, I know, and I know you're excited about it. Um, I used to love doing that work. Uh, let's talk about the I'm fact that I'm just trying to get as much sleep as I can while I can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Meg, there's nothing like being on the road with a 5 a.m. bag call when the Secret Service wants your bags out in the hall of the hotel to take the whatever lucky, plane you're getting on. If not earlier, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So Ron DeSantis is in uh, Smyrna today. He's at the store that calls itself the world's largest gun store. I said before, a popular rallying place for Republican candidates. It's the only place during the 2022 campaign where Brian Kemp held a, an event uh, with Herschel Walker. And, of course, Meg DeSantis comes to town to promote his book, but he's also traveling around the country, presumably setting up his presidential campaign there are people who feel it's really the wrong place to go in the days after the awful tragedy at in Nashville. Meg? There has been a lot of criticism, particularly about the timing of this. You're absolutely right. Appearing at a store that is known for selling firearms in the wake of a school shooting where six people, three of whom were children, were killed um, is certainly something that DeSantis is receiving some criticism for. Um, but you're also right. This is part of his his national effort at touring around, getting his name out, doing what has long been anticipated would be part of kind of a, a national rollout in a the slow boil leading up to um, a, a presidential announcement. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's we're also kind of in the news cycle of. Ron DeSantis receiving criticism for a lot of other things um, from Democrats, some, but also a lot of his fellow Republicans um, in, you know, terms of his comments on the ongoing war in Ukraine um, and some other issues that, you know, the former president, Donald Trump, has been pointing to polling that purportedly shows Ron DeSantis slipping in terms of how he measures up against the former president in a potential GOP primary field. So, yeah, there's there's a lot happening. But you know, as I think we've talked about before, it's kind of in this this sphere of when someone isn't an official candidate, 
And they're also somebody who hasn't necessarily been on that national stage before. There are a lot of unknowns. And so that creates an opportunity for a lot of folks who may be politically opposed to that person, Ron DeSantis here, giving a lot of oxygen and space to kind of pick apart and wonder and try to figure out what are the things that we don't know about this particular person when they're trying to maybe, we anticipate, argue that they should be representing the GOP on a national stage. So a lot of different factors all feeding into this visit today in the uh, in the Georgia area there. Kevin? Yeah, I, I think Meg's right about uh, about that. I mean, you know, DeSantis has made a lot of noise in Georgia and he's done a lot of things to satisfy uh, you know, <clears throat> deeply conservative constituencies. Uh, but let's remember, I mean, he's in Florida. He's got a, a Republican-dominated legislature. You know, he's been able to do things and sort of have his way. As he steps out of Florida, literally in this case, and begins to try to uh, see, be seen as a national candidate, the scrutiny the skepticism, the target on his back, all of that bec becomes really a big deal from a guy who it most, I mean, people often see as fairly clumsy in a lot of interpersonal uh, interactions. Now, again, maybe he gets better at all of that. Maybe uh, it improves. But I, I honestly, I, I think that the timing on this, um, I get these events are scheduled and people make plans and there's fundraising attached to it. But really? I mean, we're still walking around. People are wondering what the heck happened in Nashville. It's it's causing passionate reactions, including from the head coach of Georgia Tech's football team. And he's showing up here to do that. I, again, I just think that you got to wonder, does the guy have the what it takes and the staff that it's going to take to really emerge, especially when, you know, the most prominent Republican voice still remains to be. I mean, it's still Donald Trump. Uh, Maya, um, uh, 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 Nikema Williams, Representative Williams, Congresswoman Williams, has uh, tweeted that he should cancel the event immediately. Lucy McBath, um, who, of course, we know lost her own, her own son in a terrible gun incident, uh, is angry about this. But those aren't the people that Ron DeSantis is trying to reach today. He's going for the Republican base. Right. You know, I, I can't think of a, a world in which a Republican candidate in any instance, but especially someone who's considering a run for president, canceling an event that they had planned at a, a gun store, gun range in any instance. So, you know, were he to do that, that would not go well with uh, the Republican base. So he's he's here to um gain interest uh, from from Georgia voters to make his claim, make his case for for why they should eventually support him if he does get into the race. And and yeah, so that's he. Yeah, he's not he's not thinking about what uh, these Democratic leaders have to say. Uh, Meg. And one more thing, a point of timing that I wanted to point out, we were talking um, within the AP about planning for the upcoming NRA conference where there are going to be multiple mm -hmm. potential and current candidates um, in attendance. Last year, the NRA held its convention in Texas, which was just mm -hmm. days after the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. So again, like as Kevin was pointing out, a lot of these things obviously involve a lot of planning. 
Um, but the points of timing in a world where there are mass shootings, shootings in schools and other places considered to be in the mass shooting category that happen very frequently, unfortunately, in our society. And so there are a lot of these things that kind of end up timing wise to be in the same sort of calendar um, as those circumstances. And it is it's poignant, um, but important to note that they they do happen. Uh, I'd like to uh, continue the conversation after we take our final break about how political leaders are responding to this most recent uh, shooting in Nashville. Um, we'll do that after these messages. <laughs> Kevin Riley, um, it, it, the reaction in Washington is the starting point to the uh, shootings in Nashville that left six people dead. Um, it's not been surprising. Uh, Democrats calling for pleas, including the president saying, I've done as much as I can do on my own. Um, it's time for Congress to step in and really take more action. Of course, last year, uh, the president was able to pass a, a gun bill that gave added some protections. Um, but now he says, look, we've got to get rid of assault weapons. And we remember back in the 90s, Senator Joe Biden was one of the leaders of an effort that led to a ban on assault weapons that finally uh, expired. But the typical reaction is um, Republicans uh, say, there's nothing we can do. This is about bad characters. Yeah, I mean, there's a collective, uh, I guess you'd call it throwing up your hands in, in Washington on this. The president, as you point out, saying, I've done everything I can do. And then Republican members of Congress just saying, uh, we're not, we're not taking this on. We're, we're, we're it's just not going to come up. So, um, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of frustration out there because, uh, it's hard to make the case that it's okay to let things like this go on. And, and everyone's talking past each other on, well, what could you, should you do about it? And Republicans simply don't believe stronger gun laws would do anything. And of course, Democrats believe it's all about the guns. Um, the one thing that has happened on the Hill, we should point out, though, Meg, is that the House Judiciary Committee was scheduled to uh, do a markup on a bill that was being promoted by George's Andrew Clyde. It was it was a bill that would uh, overturn uh, uh, alcohol, alcohol, tobacco and firearms, ATF restrictions on so-called pistol braces. I I'm not a gun guy, but but I think a pistol brace essentially steadies a weapon so that it can be fired more accurately. They were due, I think, to mark up that bill next week. They've decided to delay it. Yes, yet again, you know, it's we talk about this all the time when circumstances happen and then perhaps forces who oppose something that's about to be debated or is being debated choose to hold off on that. Um, so, you know, we'll see where this debate goes. I would imagine it, it will get picked up um, like you, I'm, I'm not super familiar with pistol braces aside from what I've read about it. Um, but, you know, this is is something that those who argue for more restrictions and um, control on firearms, this is something that um, would potentially be, you know, it could tamp down um, the numbers in circulation and, and ideally lead toward um, fewer um, instances of violence um, with these kinds of regulations. So, you know, we'll see where it goes. Um, but, you know, for now, 
that uh, does appear to be on hold. Uh, Maya uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, inserted herself into all of this and earned herself a, uh, I think, seven-day suspension, uh, her congressional account, in in her tweet about what happened in Nashville. The, the shooter was identified as someone named Audrey Hale. But then law enforcement went back and looked through the uh, social media of Audrey Hale and found that Audrey Hale was using, I believe, male pronouns uh, to describe themselves. And so there are reasons to think that perhaps Audrey Hale is transgender, although that hasn't been confirmed. But that did not stop Marjorie Taylor Greene from uh, tweeting out that um, uh, she was uh, part of what they describe, the Republican right-wingers describe as trans days of vengeance, transgendered people who are going to take violent action because they feel they're being discriminated against by conservatives. Yeah, you know, and these these groups of people say that this is not about violence. It's just about, uh, you know, fighting back with policy and energizing their base um, to push for more uh, protections for transgender people as we're seeing them be uh, the focus of legislation around the country, including here in Georgia. We had a bill that was already signed by the governor that limits um, treatment for transgender youth. Um, So, you know, transgender people are... I don't want to say an easy target, but they've definitely been a a major focus of Republicans across the country. And so I think when they got a whiff that this might be part of uh, what was at play in Nashville, um, it it was too um, juicy for them not to jump on and and, and run with that tidbit of information. Um, So a seven-day suspension for uh, the congressional uh, account of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was already calling for people to help overturn that. And I'll bet you, I haven't seen it yet, Sarah, but I'll bet you there's some fundraising emails that went out around this. But you know what? We got a lot of intertwined uh, subjects today. So I'm going to take us back briefly to the legislature and what they did and did not accomplish. And as Maya just pointed out, one of the measures that Governor Kemp and Republicans are going to uh, really tout as an important step for them was this uh, now law, because Kemp has signed it, that blocks medical professionals from giving treatment to transgender young people. That's right. So um, SB 140, it limits medical Mm -hmm. options for transgender people. It essentially says that they cannot have hormone replacement therapy or surgeries that would um, help with their gender uh, I don't want to say dysphoria. I think that has been used a little bit um, in a partisan way, but it would help them feel more aligned uh, with their gender identity. And I, there was a lot of pushback, both from the trans community and allies of the trans community, who are worried about the mental health implications of a piece of legislation like this. They were saying that it could, you know, um, increase suicide rates, which we already know are higher for transgender youth. Um, And Meg, once again, intertwining issues, this is going to be something that Republican candidates for president will certainly embrace out on the campaign trail. A hundred percent. And it's something that we are already seeing begin to play a major role in the way that many of these candidates 
are talking about themselves. Going back to Ron DeSantis, clearly these issues have played a major role in what is becoming the beginnings of his presidential campaign, particularly being able to flick back to his work as governor and the recent expansion in Florida of the quote unquote, don't say gay bill going all the way through K-12 education. So this, you know, some people reference it as a culture war area where Republican candidates are going to be talking about you know, I want to keep your children safe. I want to safeguard your family from all of these, quote unquote, woke threats that are in society right now. We're hearing that in a cattle call event of candidates in South Carolina that I attended recently. That was one of the major areas where we saw candidates talking about. Sure, there was the economy and there was foreign policy also discussed, but this is really going to be a major uh, frontier when we're looking at the GOP field in 2024, and at least for the primaries, um, the ways in which they're going to be making their arguments to voters for the primary elections. Kevin, let me take up one last issue and start with you on this. Um, Congressman Barry Loudermilk, Georgia 3rd District, um, was the chairman of a subcommittee that was uh, investigating two aspects of January 6th. One was what was ha- what happened to security measures around the Capitol that what kind of failures might have uh, occurred. But he was also uh, looking at w- w- the way in which the special January 6th um, committee uh, released its findings on what happened on January 6th. So he's released some of the findings. One of them was that... Um, the January 6th committee manipulated images and put out a story that didn't necessarily tell what really happened, which is kind of the Tucker Carlson uh, way of describing January 6th. But the other was that he essentially uh, investigated himself and said that the tour he led of the U.S. Capitol the day before, which included two people who were part of the Stop the Steal rally, that it was a completely innocent tour. He wasn't helping them scout uh, for ways to get into the Capitol. And by the way, those two people were at the rally. Neither of them entered the Capitol. Right. So um, as he uh, accuses one side of cherry picking information and images, um, then he proceeds to do the same, uh, which is apparently what's going to go on with all of this uh, January 6th thing for some time. But yeah, you know, he really was. Uh, faced a lot of heat about that tour that he gave. And you'll recall, it showed these people taking pictures that seemed like unusual pictures to take uh, on such a tour. So, uh, but I think we just need to get used to this. Everyone's trying to uh, make sure that they they can say uh, they, they didn't do anything wrong and the other side did. All right, Kevin Riley gets the last word on today's Political Rewind because we are completely out of time. So um, Meg Kennard of AP, uh, Sarah Callis, GPB-TV, Maya Prabhu of, of uh, the AJC. I know you got to file a big story, Maya, uh, uh, you know, a wrap-up story, but I, I hope you get at least a little time off. Riley can't give it to you anymore, but now Leroy Chapman, the editor-in-chief, could and i hope he does that sarah (laughs) good for you thank you all so much for being with us we're back with another show tomorrow among other things we're going to talk about andre dickens really doubling down on cop city in the meantime i'm bill nigat take care stay healthy and please be kind to one another bye everybody